This is Shakespeare Closely Read. I am your host, Mark Naftal. In this podcast, I read the works of William Shakespeare and other authors in the public domain. In addition to reading these works in their entirety, I will stop frequently to comment on the text, its meaning, and lessons to be drawn. This is a place for lovers of Shakespeare's words, words, words. I delight in the beauty of his language and believe through this beauty we can find truth and how to live a virtuous life. I hope this podcast can help students understand Shakespeare better and how to appreciate his sometimes difficult language. Maybe you can use it to help you write papers or study for tests. Drop me an email at shakespeareclosely at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, alternative interpretations, or would like some help. Let us begin. Last time, we uh, finished off the text of the play of uh, Coriolanus, and um, before I start talking about some of the actual history involved um, of the events of this play, I wanted to um, a few final considerations about it. Um, this play is usually uh, uh, it's not it's not one of Shakespeare's mo- most uh, frequently produced plays, but it it has been getting more attention, especially lately. Um, and like many Shakespeare plays, uh, recent production of Richard III comes to mind, uh, trying to set it in fascist um, tones, saying that uh, Coriolanus can be seen as a prototypical Nazi or maybe an Italian fascist or something like that. I don't really think that interpretation holds up. Uh, but I would not be too surprised if somewhere there's a production going on, right, even as we speak, um, of having Coriolanus or having uh, Trump as Coriolanus, perhaps would be uh, Trumpiolanus or something like that, which I think would be uh, quite a stretch, uh, even though I guess you could say Trump is certainly a proud man. Uh, but I don't see Coriolanus, uh, the character that Shakespeare in, in envisioned him, as being a fascist. Fascists uh, um, were extreme populists. Uh, they claim to be working or, or representing the working man, the common man. Uh, the state was everything. Uh, Coriolanus was totally a loner. Um, he had no political skills, zero. Uh, and that was what really led to his downfall, was his, his extreme pride. Um, now, that said, he doesn't come off well uh, in the play. Um, he seems, if anything, he's just true to himself, um, perhaps in the sort of rootless sense that uh, Polonius' uh, advice to his son had, who his own self be true. He wasn't true to anybody else. So um, I suppose you could look at it, too, as if his tragic flaw uh, was that he gave in to the women. If he had just pursued his campaign against Rome, one is led to believe he would have been successful and uh, Rome would have fallen. The grandeur that was Rome would have been nipped in the bud. Remember, this was uh, um, depicts events happening very early uh, in, in Roman history. Um, no one really comes off very well um, in Coriolanus, and as I said, the, the main character does not. Um, the uh, um, Coriolanus' friends, uh, Meninius, seems like a self-serving politician who just sort of swept along. Um, he does seem constant in his friendship to Coriolanus, but you get the impression that he wanted to use Coriolanus for his own ends. The tribunes are among the most venal, corrupt, uh, power-seeking uh, politicians that one can imagine. Sicinius and Brutus are cowardly uh, as well. The people are fickle. 
um, and don't seem to be able to uh, do anything beyond their own um, uh, immediate self-interest. His mother seems like a, uh, Corey Linus's mother seems almost like a she-wolf or something. Um, his, his wife um, seems just sort of like a sentimental fool. Um, the only the only characters I can think of that are actually show some constancy and virtue are the Watchmen that uh, Meninius uh, meets when he's trying to get access to the Volscian army. Uh, they do their duty. Uh, they're not impressed uh, by Meninius's rank um, nor his threats against them. In fact, they're sort of mocking of him. But they're constant, and they, they seem to have a bit of a rough virtue uh, about them as well. Other than that, I'm sort of hard-pressed to, to find anything admirable about anybody um, in the play. Um, there are no really great speeches uh, in, it, in it either. Uh, nevertheless, it's somewhat compelling. Uh, Coriolanus, so I guess you could consider him a bit of a caricature, is somewhat uh, compelling as well. So let's look at the history. Um, involved with this, and naturally, like so many things these days, uh, historians today uh, seem to be claiming that uh, the events didn't really happen. Uh, nevertheless, they're pretty well documented. It probably happened somewhere around the year 493 to 491 BC. Uh, notice I am not going to use that ridiculous abbreviation BCE. It is always BC, so there it is. Um, Livy had a good discussion of it, which I'm going to read some of. And uh, next time, I think uh, we might look into um, uh, what Plutarch had to say about it. Um, Shakespeare seemed to rely on Plutarch for uh, several of his plays, particularly the Roman one. So uh, let's, uh, let's look at what it has to say. Um, now, He's, there was a, early on, Rome was in conflict with the Volscians and the, the Sabines uh, as well. And uh, Meninius is mentioned first uh, in this, so I'm not sure he would have been um, alive, actually, at the time. But at any rate, let's see. They're talking now about what's called the secession, that's the leaving of the, of the plebeians. They, uh, they left Rome and threatened to form their own city. This is... Um, I think probably corresponds to the first scenes in the play, uh, where there is a conflict about whether um, uh, the plebeians were going to get food or not. Picking up in Livy. In Rome, there was something like panic, with one party as much alarmed by the situation as the other, everything coming to a standstill. The commons, abandoned as they were by their friends in the army, feared violence at the hands of the senatorial party who in their turn were afraid of the commons still left in the city, and could hardly make up their minds if they would rather see them stay or go. Moreover, how long would the deserters be content to remain inactive? What would happen if, in the present situation, there were a threat of foreign invasion? Clearly, the only hope lay in finding a solution for the conflicting interests of the two classes, classes in the state. By fair means or foul, the country must recover its internal harmony. The senatorial party accordingly decided to employ Meninius Agrippa as their spokesman to the commons on the sacred mount. He was a good speaker, and the common liked him as he was one of themselves. Okay, so Meninius, his full name was Meninius Agrippa, and that's a very familiar name throughout Roman history. In fact, there was an Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, 
who's uh, who's in the in the New Testament. And apparently, the Agrippa family uh, were friends with um, Caesar Augustus um, as well. Really, the first emperor of Rome. Interesting also that Livy says that um, Meninius was a commoner. Um, he's portrayed in the play as uh, as being of the same rank as. Um, as Coriolanus and the other senators. Obviously, he was a spokesman for them. He's sort of, I guess, like a, a mouth for hire, if you will. You could look on him as an attorney, perhaps, but he was he was employed um, as a diplomat, I guess you could say, too, uh, to go and persuade the commons. Uh, back to the text. Admitted to the deserter's camp, he is said to have told them, in the rugged style of those far-off days, uh, this was long ago, even in Livy's time, the following story. Uh, remember, though, Livy was much closer to these events than we are, so I take his word over some uh, historian today who just wants to debunk Livy in order to have a dissertation topic. At any rate, he told them the following story. Long ago, when the members of the human body did not, as they now do, agree together, but had each his own thoughts and the words to express them in, the other parts resented the fact that they should have the worry and trouble of providing everything for the belly, which remained idle, surrounded by its ministers, with nothing to do but enjoy the pleasant things they gave it. So the discontented members plotted together that they should should hand that that the hand should carry no food to the mouth, the mouth should take nothing that was offered it, and the teeth should accept nothing to chew. But alas, while they sought in their resentment to subdue the belly by starvation, they themselves and the whole body wasted away to nothing. By this it was apparent that the belly, too, has no mean service to perform. It receives food indeed, but it also nourishes in its turn the other members, giving back to all parts of the body, through all its veins, the blood it is made by the process of digestion. And upon this blood our life and our health depend. The fable of the revolt of the body members, body members, Meninius applied to the political situation, pointing out its resemblance to the anger of the populace against the governing class. And so successful was his story that their resentment was mollified. Okay, um, Shakespeare includes the story, but the, the commons don't seem to be exactly mollified uh, by Meninius's story. He, he tells it and doesn't really seem to change anything, at least as I recall. But back to the text. Negotiations began, and, on a, and an agreement was, was reached on the condition that special magistrates should be appointed to represent the commons. These officers, tribunes of the people, should be above the law, and their function should be to protect the commons against the consuls. No man of the senatorial class was allowed to hold the office. The two tribunes were accordingly created, Caius Licinius and Lucinius Lucius Albinus, who in their turn appointed three colleagues, one of whom was the Sicinius who had led the revolt. The, uh, who, were, who the other two were was uncertain. According to one account, two tribunes only were appointed to office on the sacred mount, and it was there that the law was passed which secured their inviolability. Okay, so again, uh, Shakespeare doesn't follow Livy exactly there, because he has the tribunes already in existence when this happened, and uh, it was Sicinius and Brutus who were stirring them up. Uh, let's see, where is next? And then some other things about, about consuls. Let's see, oh, here we go. Um, 
During the secession of the plebs, as it came to be called, Spurius Cassius and Postumus Cominius began their terms as consuls. That year a treaty was made with the communities of Latium, and to preside over the ceremony, one of the consuls remained in Rome, the other went on service against the Volscians and heavily defeated them at Antium. They were forced to take refuge at Longula, which shortly afterwards also fell to Rome. The capture of Polusca, another Volscian town, quickly followed, after which a powerful attack was launched upon Carioli. Serving at the army at this time was a young aristocrat named Caius Mar Marcius, an active and intelligent officer who was presently to earn the courtesy title of Coriolanus. Okay, so he see he makes his appearance then. He was apparently was not active uh, before then, as the play would have us believe. Back to the text. It so happened that at a critical moment during the operations, Marcius was on guard. The last thing the Romans were expecting was any danger from outside the time town, upon the siege of which their whole attention was concentrated. Suddenly, however, a Vulcan force appeared from the direction of Antium, and to go inside with its attack, there was a vigorous sortie from the town. Marcius, with a small body of picked men, broke up the sortie, and then, with great daring, forced his way through the open gate into Coriolai itself. There he laid about him to some purpose, and finally seized a blazing firebrand and flung it amongst the houses, just within the wall of the town. The cry which arose and the shrieks of women and children in terror of death were for the Roman troops a heartening sound, but for the Volscians it seemed to be the end. The town they had come to relieve was already taken. In this way the men of Antium were defeated, and Coriolai fell. Marcius had covered himself with glory, so much that he had completely overshadowed his commander, the consul Cominius. Indeed, no one have remembered that Cominius had fought at all in the action against the Volscians, had it not been for the record on a brazen column of a treaty made at that time with the Latins. That record declared that the treaty was signed by one consul only, Spurius Cassius, the other being absent from Rome on service. Okay, so there's Livy's account of, uh, of what happened. And um, uh, Shakespeare, maybe through Plutarch, we'll see next time, uh, embellishes it so that not only did Coriolanus um, uh, go into town and cause a fire and disrupt the, the Volscians, he came out and defeated them, uh, the ones in the field as well. Now remember, fire was quite a terror during this time, and um, forget what you've seen in all the, the dramatic presentations of Rome. Rome, especially at this time, and all the other towns around it, were best made of wood, and they burned quite uh, quite readily. There were not all these these stone columns and everything that you see in, in dramas. So that's, uh, that's where Coriolanus got his name, however, back to the text. During the course of this year, Menenius Agrippa died. Okay, so he would not have been around um, when the later events in the play took place. Throughout his life, he had been much loved by both parties in the state. And after the secession, he had made himself to the commons even dearer than before. His services to his country had been great. Sent by the Senate as their ambassador to the people, he had carried through the negotiations which healed the breach between the opposing classes, and had been the means of bringing back to Rome the citizens who had deserted her. Yet he died so poor that his estate could not bear the expense of his funeral. He was buried by the commons, who each contributed a few pence for the purpose. Okay, Menenius comes off much better in this history than he does in the play. And uh, the commons themselves look, look 
pretty good too, you know, that they, they saw, they recognize the services of Menenius. Shakespeare makes Menenius an aristocrat. Back to the text. Uh, let's see, the next consuls to enter upon office were Titus uh, Giganus and Publius Municius. It was a year of peace and the political troubles were for the moment over, but Rome nonetheless had to face a situation even more dangerous than war, civil discord. During the secession, work on the land had been suspended, and the result was a steep rise in the price of grain. Famine followed so severe that Rome might have been a beleaguered city. The slaves and the poor members of the community would undoubtedly have starved to death had not the consuls acted promptly and sent agents over a wide area to arrange for the purpose of purchase of grain. Bad relations with neighboring communities had made it necessary to go far afield, and the agents were instructed to travel northwest along the Aturian coast and south, southeast along the Volscian coast to Cumae, and even as far as Sicily. Astrodemus, the reigning prince of Cumae, was the heir of the Tarquins, and after supplies had been bought there, he retained the Roman grain ships in lieu of the property he ought to have inherited. Okay, remember, they the Romans kicked out Tarquin. Now, Shakespeare seems to here have been uh, combining the secession of the plebs with uh, the grain shortage, but notice that Livy credits the Senate, the aristocrats, with, uh, with doing everything they could to get grain in order to feed the people. Back to the text. From the Volscians and the people of the Pomptine Pomp marches, nothing could be obtained. Indeed, the agents were actually in danger of violence. From Aturia, supplies reached Rome by way of the Tiber, and this was enough to keep the people alive. Fortunately for Rome, the Volscians at this time, just as they were preparing an invasion, were struck down by a serious epidemic. Had this not occurred, Rome had a disastrous war on her hands to add to her other difficulties. Volscian morale was so shattered by the effect of the epidemic that they had hardly recovered even the worst of it was over even after the worst of it was over. And the Romans took advantage of the situation to increase the number of their settlers in Valetriae and to send out fresh settlers to the hill town of Norba, which thus became a fortified point for the defense of the Pomptine region. In the following year, when, when Marcus Manicius and Olus Sempronus had entered on the term of their office, large supplies of grain were imported from Sicily. And there was a debate in the Senate on the price which the commons were to be charged for it. Many thought that the time had come for repressive measures and for recovering the privileges which the commons, by their act of secession, had forced the governing class to surrender. Their chief spokesman was Marcus Coriolanus. Okay, so here's the episode uh, in the beginning. But as I say, Shakespeare seemed to have combined several things. Who was a bitter enemy of the newly instituted power of the tribunes. If they want grain at the old price, he said, they must give us back our old privileges. What have I done that I should see upstarts from the mob in office? Am I a slave? Have I been ransomed from brigands? Am I to endure this indignity a moment longer than I need? King Tarquin was not to be born. Are we to bear then with King Sicinius? Let him pack up his traps and be gone, and the rabble with him. The road is clear to the sacred mount or any other hills. They can steal grain from our fields as they did two years ago. As for prizes, it was their own folly which raised them to their present level, so they must make the best of it. If I am not mistaken, their troubles will soon make them change their tune. They are more likely to get to work on the land again themselves if they go off under arms and prevent others from doing so. Okay, so 
certainly Livy uh, portrays Coriolanus as very proud there. And uh, yeah, like, uh, Livy says uh, the enemy um, of the uh, of the plebeians. Uh, back to the text. Whether Coriolanus was actually right is not easy to say. I do, however, think it possible that the senatorial party might have succeeded in freeing themselves from the various restrictions, including the tribunate, to which they had been forced to agree, if only they had consented to reduce the price of grain. As it was, the attitude of Coriolanus seemed to them excessively harsh. While the commons were so infuriated by it, they almost resorted to violence. To them, it seemed that, that it was a deliberate threat to starve them by withholding the bare necessities of life, and that the imported grain, the sole means of support, which an unexpected uh, piece of luck had brought them, would be snatched from their mouths unless Caius Marcius were permitted to work his brutal will upon them. And the tribunes, their only defense, were sacrificed to satisfy his pride. Okay, there we see the pride of Coriolanus. Marcius, in short, was little better than their executioner. He offered them the choice between death and slavery. As he was leaving the Senate House, he would have been assaulted, but for the timely action of the tribunes, who issued a summons against him. This mollified the fury of the mob, as their position was now reversed, and every man was enabled to see himself as the judge of this hated enemy, with power over him of life and death. As for Marcus, his first reaction to the strong measures taken by the tribunes was one of contempt. Their office, he declared, had nothing to do with the senatorial party. They were not empowered to inflict punishment, but merely to support the popular cause. Up to a point, however, the Senate was forced to yield, feeling it wiser to sacrifice one of their number to appease the popular fury. They did, nonetheless, take steps to counter their adversaries, employing such resources as they possessed, individual or corporate. For instance, they use their personal dependence to try to scare people from taking part in popular meetings in the hope of wrecking their plans. Then, when that failed, they turned to entreaty, hundreds of them going into the streets and begging the ang angry populace to give them back their friend. After all, he wants but one, a single member of their order. If they could not acquit him, would they not, as a favor, let him go free? It was, not a, str it was a strange scene, almost as if the whole nobility as a body were on their trial before the people. But it was all to no purpose. Coriolanus failed to appear in court, and the feeling against him finally hardened. He was condemned in his absence and went into exile with the Vulsians, bitter as ever, and, and vowing vengeance upon his country. Okay, so see there that um, Coriolanus was uh, tried, um, but not after he had stood for consul and uh, had whipped up the mob that way. So uh, has it just uh, that he was contemptuous in a speech in the Senate and um, in essence was tried for that. So actually, I guess he comes off a little bit better there. He was not seeking political power or anything that uh, uh, the mob just in their um, fury at being insulted got him. And uh, Livy says it was pretty much known, it looks like it was known immediately that he went with the Volscians. Back to the text. The Volscians, who gave him a warm welcome, treated him with ever greater consideration as they observed his growing bitterness between Rome and listened to the complaints and threats of revenge against her, which were ever more frequently on his lips. He stayed in the house of Attus Attius Tullius, the most distinguished name among the Volscian peoples and a lifelong enemy of Rome. I guess that's Aphidius in, uh, in Shakespeare's play. This dangerous pair, the one moved by inveterate hostility, gathered by resentment at his recent wrongs, began to lay their plans for war. 
Both knew that the chief obstacle would be the attitude of the Volscian commons, who after their many previous defeats could not be easily persuaded or driven to renew hostilities. Many men, moreover, of military age had died in the recent epidemic, and that added to the war losses of the past few years had gone far to break their spirit. Popular hatred of Rome had cooled with the lapse of time, and it was necessary in consequence to devise something which would once more exacerbate their feelings against their old enemy. It so happened that these preparations were in progress in Rome for a re repetition of the great games, uh, capital letter G, capital letter G. The reason for holding the ceremony afresh was, to include, was an incident which, in the first instance, had violated its sanctity. Uh, remember, the games were, uh, were considered religious festivals. Back to the text. Early in the morning before the ceremony opened, someone had driven one of the slaves manacled across the arena, beating him as he went. The games then began, as it, as it apparently occurred to nobody, that this had been an act of desecration. Soon after, however, working man Titus Latinus dreamed that Jupiter told him that he was displeased with the leading dancer at the games, and then went on to say that unless the festival was started all over again in the most sumptuous manner, Rome would be in peril. It was his duty, therefore, the god declared, to go and tell this to the consuls. Latinius was by no means insensitive to the solemn import of this dream, but in spite of his alarm, he was so much in awe of the consular office and so much afraid of being laughed at that he could not bring himself to obey the god's command. His hesitation cost him dear. For a few days later, he lost his son. Then, as proof, if proof were needed of the cause of the sudden calamity, the unfortunate man again dreamed that he saw the figure of Jupiter, who at this time asked him if he thought he was fairly paid for ignoring the divine command and threatened that worse was to come if he did not make haste to tell the consuls of the warning he had received. Well, Jupiter's not very nice there, I don't think. Back to the text. The poor fellow now realized that there was no escape. But for all that, he continued to hesitate, and he fell desperately ill, and so at long last learnt his lesson. Exhausted by sickness and grief, he summoned his kinsmen to his bedside and told them how more than once he had seen Jupiter in his dreams and heard his voice, and how the threats of the angry gods had been fulfilled in his own, to, in his own misfortunes. All were agreed without any doubt upon what was to be done, and he was forthwith carried in a litter to the consuls in the forum. The consuls instructed his bearers to take him to the Senate House, and there, to the wonder of all who were present, he repeated his tale. The ending of it was crowned by another miracle, for, if we may believe the traditional account, though he had entered the Senate House a desperately sick man, once his duty was done, he walked home unaided. Okay, that, that is a wonderful story. I think Shakespeare could have done something with that. I'm sorry he didn't include that in the play. The Senate issued a decree that the game should be celebrated anew with all possible splendor, and Attius Tullius arranged for them to be attended by a very large number of his countrymen. Okay, so remember, Attius Tullius is the Vulcan who uh, Coriolanus has been um, um, plotting with. Back to the text. Before they began, Tullius, according to a plan which he and Marcius had hatched between them, informed the consuls that he had some business of state, uh, which he would like to discuss in private. The consuls agreed, and as soon as they were alone, Tullius began, I hesitate, he said, to say anything derogatory about my own countrymen. And indeed, I have not come to here to accuse them, but merely put you on guard, lest they should misbehave themselves. The fact is, there is more instability and caprice in our national character than I like to admit. 
We've learned this the hard way, since we are a preservation lent to our own merits and to your forbearance. Now, many hundreds of my people are here in Rome, a festival is in progress, and everyone's attention will be occupied in watching it. I've never forgotten what the Sabines did to you on a similar occasion, and I'm anxious lest some foolish and regrettable incident should occur today. I thought it my duty, gentlemen, to mention this to you for both our sakes. Personally, I propose we go home at once, to avoid being implicated in anything disagreeable that may be done or said. The consuls reported this to the Senate as soon as Tullius had gone. The warning was vague, but it came from a reliable source, and for this reason, naturally enough, the Senate, by way of precaution, which uh, might have been proved unnecessary, issued an order to the effect that all Vulcans should leave the city at once. Officers were instructed to order every man to be out before dark. The first effect of this upon the unfortunate Vulcans was something like panic, as they scurried to their lodgings to collect their luggage, and once they were on the road, alarm gave way to indignation at being treated like plague-spotted criminals and driven out at a time of solemn religious festival, as if they were un unfit, unfit to associate with gods or men. Tullius rode on ahead of the long line of angry men and stopped to wait for them at the source of, um, source of the Ferentiana. That must be a, uh, a river of some sort. Well, we're about to the end. This is a very interesting story. Um, we're not going to get through with Livy today, but I'm, I hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm enjoying reading it. So we'll pick up there next time with our next episode. And until then, adieu.